If you have your Bibles with you tonight, turn open to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this evening. We are continuing in the book of Acts. And we are continuing what might just be the longest and most drawn-out sermon series that has ever been known to man. <laughs> because when I last decided to preach on this book, it was 2019, back in pre-pandemic days, if you can believe it. And uh, up until that point, I covered Acts chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, and then in April of last year, I filled in for Pastor Cruz's Sunday school class, and we talked about the beginning of Peter's sermon at Pentecost in chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. And so now, a year later, acting with sloth-like reflexes, I've decided to do part 2 of Peter's sermon, verses 22 through 41. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to continue that on tonight. I feel a bit like my uh, past sixth grade teacher, Mr. Stout. I don't know if any of you in the Cedar Crest School District remember Mr. Stout. Uh, he taught for many, many years, was one of my favorite teachers, and he had lots of traditions of things that he did year after year with his sixth grade class, one of which he would tell uh, a story called The Creeper that he would, he would tell the same story to each sixth grade class year after year, and every so many weeks, he would sit us down, end the class early, just before the bus is dismissed, and tell us a little bit more of this story. Of course, he never got to the end of the story of the creeper, and in fact, I don't think he ever did for any of his sixth grade classes, so the story was always left hanging, and so uh, maybe this series also might be a little bit like, like the creeper. I might not ever get to the end of it, but that's okay, because we actually have the text of Acts, so you can... Uh, you can always read what happens in the end, and it sort of fits because the book of Acts ends on a cliffhanger, as it were, as well. So if you don't know what I mean by that, your assignment is to go home and read the book of Acts to figure that out. In any case, let's pick up where we left off. We're in the, in the beginning of uh, chapter 2. That's where we were last time. Some of the disciples were meeting together in a house in Jerusalem. They were waiting, they were praying, and suddenly the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began to speak in other languages. And they moved outside, and the crowds of people who were gathered in Jerusalem at the time uh, for the celebration of Pentecost uh, began to marvel at what it was that they heard. And some in the crowd were amazed, others were confused, and others still mocked the disciples, saying out loud that they were drunk because they didn't understand the words that were coming out of their mouth. And so there was this divided opinion among the crowd as to what exactly was happening at this particular time. But then if we go to this particular chapter, we see that Peter summoned the courage to speak to this crowd and address what was on their mind. Uh, we know from the end of the chapter uh, that Peter addressed the crowd of over 3,000 people here. If you look at the end, uh, I think it's, we're towards the end, verse 41, and, and the area around that, it says around 3,000 people were, were baptized at that time. And so if that's how many believed and were baptized, then we can imagine that this crowd was actually even larger than that if you count those who didn't believe at the time. Um, so it's quite a crowd. And his sermon began in verses 14 through 21, and he started this sermon by saying, these disciples in front of them were not in fact drunk, but rather their speaking in tongues was a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel predicted a long time ago when God promised that he would pour out his spirit on his people in the last days. And there are two key verses from our last lesson back in April uh, that I want to just point out before we move on. Acts 2.17, so look there in your Bible. It says, 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Okay, that's the first verse I want you to notice. Acts 2, 20, 21, excuse me, verse 21 is where I want you to go next. It says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay? Those two verses sum up what Peter is talking about so far. In essence, Peter is saying, the speaking of tongues that you are hearing is a clear sign that we are in the last days. And further, because we are in the last days, God is giving you a clear warning and an invitation that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter is taking this crowd that was originally mocking the disciples, and now he's grabbing their attention by saying, stop what you're doing. God is warning you. You need to be saved. That raises these questions. Saved from what? How do we call upon the name of the Lord like you're talking about, Peter? How can we be saved? And that's what part two of Peter's sermon is going to address. Peter's going to show how Jesus is the answer to all of these questions. So let's look at the text. Tonight we're starting with verses 22 and following. So let me just read verses 22 through 24. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So let's stop here. Verse 22. Peter shifts his focus from Joel's prophecy, which again, if you have your Bibles open, just look back through that section. You don't have to read it in detail, but you can see usually in your Bibles it's indented. That's showing you that it's an Old Testament quotation. He's quoting Joel there to say that we are in the last days. All the signs and wonders that they are seeing, specifically the speaking of tongues, indicate that we are now in the last days. These are the days that Joel was prophesying about. Okay, He was talking about that particular prophecy and now, in verse 22, he's shifting his focus from Joel's prophecy now to Jesus himself. His crowd wouldn't have been expecting this. Okay, They would have been familiar with Joel's prophecy. At least many of them in Jerusalem would have been. But they wouldn't have expected him to shift the conversation like this. They wouldn't have initially seen this connection. But this is often what is necessary in any gospel conversation. You have to eventually bring the subject to Jesus. Before, Peter was saying that God promised to pour out his spirit on his people, that he would do many signs and wonders in the last days, and that God promised to save those who called out to him. Now Peter is saying Jesus is the key to all of this. Everything that you're seeing and experiencing here in the streets of Jerusalem, all that you're hearing with your ears can be explained by this one person who I'm about to tell you about. That's not what the crowd would have expected him to say, but that's what Peter does. And that's what we need to do, as a matter of fact, in our witness as well. And you know, you might begin a conversation with somebody by saying, you know, do you ever wonder what the solution is to all the evil in the world? 
You know, you, you try to think of different ways you can start a gospel conversation, right? Have you ever wondered about all the different things that are going on in this world, all the wars and all the evil we see around us and that the world seems to be getting bad and all that? That's a good way to start. But it, at some point, if you really want to preach the gospel to somebody, you've got to bring it to Jesus. You have to say that word. You have to talk about Jesus. That's the answer. Um, meaning. You could talk about meaning of life. You know, have you ever wondered what the meaning of life is? And maybe that person you're talking to could give you a number of answers that they would give. But at some point, you've got to bring that conversation to meaning of life is found in Jesus. And that's what Peter does here. He shifts the conversation to Jesus. He takes something they're familiar with, Joel's prophecy, shows them the relevance, and then ties it into this person. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. And at that point, the people of the crowd might be wondering, wait, what does Jesus have to do with any of this? What does Jesus of Nazareth have to do with a bunch of men suddenly walking around outside and speaking in languages that they never knew before? Peter's going to explain that Jesus is the key to these events in two ways, and I don't want you to miss this. Number one, the signs and wonders that were displayed in Jesus, both in his miracles on earth and in his rising from the dead, are part of the signs and wonders that Joel prophesied about in the verses before. And secondly, this same Jesus who was crucified and murdered by the hands of lawless men was also that same Jesus who they are all guilty for, for his death. And therefore, these crowd, these in the crowd are likewise guilty in need of being saved. Let me repeat that again. These are the two ways that Jesus explains the events that they have just seen. Number one, the signs and wonders that were displayed in him, both in his miracles and also in his rising from the dead, are part of those signs and wonders that Joel prophesied about. And then secondly, the same Jesus that he just talked about is also the same one that they've heard about who was crucified and murdered by lawless men, and at the same time, they also share in that guilt and so in so doing, in talking about Jesus, he's revealing their guilt and their need to be saved. Those are the two reasons that Peter gives as to why they should eventually do what he says in verse 38. Look down in your Bibles at verse 38. What is he ultimately driving at? What is he telling them to do? He says two things, repent and be baptized. You catch that? Repent and be baptized. That's ultimately what he wants to tell them but he needs to lead up to it and explain why they need to do those two things. And these are the two reasons. So let's explore these two reasons, okay? And we'll review these in greater detail. <clears throat> so number one, the signs of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection are essentially part of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecies that were referenced in the verses before. <clears throat> we see Acts 2.22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty, listen to this, works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. All right, let's stop there. Peter had already quoted Joel 2 in the previous section when he said, quote, in verse 19, look there, I will show wonders, notice that word, verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. 
And while some of those signs were end times related, such as things that he mentions later on in verse 20, the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood, it's clear that these wonders are also spoken of in verse 19 to include the wonders associated with Jesus' life. For Peter is very intentional in his word choice when he says that Jesus was, quote, attested to by God with mighty works and wonders. There's that word, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, verse 22. So notice here, the word is the same in verses 19 and 22 when it says wonders. That's true in English, that's true in Greek. It's the same word. There's a clear connection between these two verses. So Jesus' miracles serve as proof that these last days are in fact here. And in fact, if we look through the Gospels, we will see that Jesus performed at least 40 miracles, including some of these that you could probably name off the top of your head, calming a storm, or feeding the 5,000, or raising the dead, restoring sight to the blind, and much, much more. I bet if we had an open session here, I bet maybe you could name a lot of these. Jesus did many of these things in public, and so Peter is saying to the crowd, <clears throat> Jesus did these amazing things, and there's, here's what he says, as you yourselves know, as you yourselves know. This is not done in secret. You know about all of the different things that Jesus did. <clears throat> this is not something new I'm telling you. There's a really cool quote I, I, I've always loved, and it comes from a, uh, a Jewish historian named Josephus. Josephus wrote many works about the history of the Jewish people, particularly around the first century. Um, that's the time in which he lived, and so it's very relevant to our studies about what Jewish life was like in the time of Jesus. But there's a very famous passage from this Jewish historian, and what's amazing about it is Josephus, as far as we can tell, was not a Christian, wasn't a believer, he was a Jew. He was just reporting on some of the things he heard. But listen to the way he describes this person of Jesus who apparently he heard about in his book called The Antiquities of the Jews. In other words, the Acts and the History of the Jews. He says this, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who, listen to this, performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. And he won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. That's Josephus. That's a Jewish historian. Not a Christian, not part of the Gospels, not part of the Bible, saying this about this man. It's one of my favorite passages that in history we have that recorded by this non-Christian person, saying that even he heard that there was this man out there named Jesus who had done these miraculous signs and wonders. And so that's why it's saying here, while Peter is saying, this is something that you all know. You've heard of it. It's well known. We go on to Acts 2, 23 and 24. Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing him, from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter essentially says, this same Jesus not only performed astonishing, miraculous works, but he also was killed and then rose from the dead. And that was perhaps Jesus' greatest sign and wonder of all. 
And just to kind of prove that point, there are a few other passages in the Gospels that call Jesus' resurrection a sign. You don't have to turn there, but John 2, 18 and 19 say this, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's referring to his body. He's referring to his future resurrection. Further, in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, Jesus answers them, and he says, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign, there's that word again, will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, the point is that Jesus' resurrection is a clear sign or a clear wonder, if you will, that I believe fits very well in this category of what Peter is talking about. When he's saying, men of Israel, Joel prophesied about all these signs and wonders that were to come. And yes, you've just heard these men in the streets talking in these other languages. But also notice there's this man, Jesus, that you have heard about. And he did many miraculous works, again, as you all know about. And also, he rose from the dead, as again, you probably have heard about. You've probably heard he was crucified a few days ago or months ago, and you probably heard about how he was rumored to have risen from the dead. Well, he is. He's alive. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Joel is talking about in this prophecy. It's a sign. It's a wonder that you should pay attention to. Now, Peter goes on to prove that Jesus' resurrection was also foretold in the Old Testament. And that this was consistent with what the Jewish scriptures had promised. Notice once again, Acts 2.22. Do you see there that when Peter says men of Israel, that's key. He says in verse 22, men of Israel. Of course, not everyone who is in town for Pentecost was from Israel, literally. We already said that there were many people who were from other parts of the world who spoke different languages. But when Peter starts by saying men of Israel, I think this reveals that many of the people who were mocking the disciples, and saying that they were drunk, were likely from Israel. Why? Because they likely wouldn't have recognized the foreign languages. That's why. In some cases, they wouldn't have been able to tell the language of the Arabians, for example, from gibberish. And that's why they figure that the disciples are drunk. They don't understand what's going on. So he says, and he directs this to them, men of Israel. But people uh, here are not understanding what's going on, and Peter goes on to specifically address the Jewish people in his audience, uh, because he goes to the Hebrew Scriptures. So he knows his audience, knows the Bible, and here in verses 25 through 32, he quotes Scripture. It says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter continues. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, which 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. But this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So let's stop there. We're looking at 25 through 32 now, and this passage that Peter is quoting here is actually Psalm 16, Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 specifically, and it's a passage that many of his Jewish audience would have known. Peter points out three things from this. So just as you notice that quotation, notice these things, this series of arguments. He says, number one, this passage speaks of somebody who is not abandoned to Hades, in other words, the place of the dead, or seeing corruption, that is decay. You notice that in this passage. Secondly, Peter's saying this, this passage, this Psalm 16, cannot be referring to David since he died and his tomb is still known to us uh, in this day. And then thirdly, therefore, this passage must point to someone else. And in fact, that person is Jesus. So Peter's trying to get the crowd to see that not only were they aware of Jesus' miracles on earth, and even perhaps his death and rumored resurrection. But they also now needed to reckon with their own scriptures, which predicted and pointed to Jesus' resurrection as well. King David predicted Jesus' resurrection through the Holy Spirit in the book of Psalms. And even further, Peter says in Acts 2.32, this God, this, I'm sorry, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So he's just giving layer upon layer of evidence, right? He's saying Jesus performed all these miraculous things and he was raised from the the dead. That fits with the wonders that were spoken about in Joel. And here Jesus' resurrection is pointed to and predicted by King David through the Holy Spirit in Psalm 16. And he's saying on top of that, now verse 32, we're all witnesses to this. We saw him. These disciples who are speaking these tongues that you're hearing, We're not crazy. We're not drunk. We actually saw this risen Christ ourselves. So it's another bit of evidence that these people in the crowd have to reckon with. He then makes one final connection between Jesus and the prophecies of Joel. He tells the crowd that because Jesus was raised and ascended into heaven, this is what prompted the pouring out of God's Spirit, as Joel had predicted. Continuing with verse 33, says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is yet another passage of Scripture that Peter is quoting. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 1 here, and he makes a similar point, that David is clearly speaking about someone other than himself. Someone in this passage is sitting at the Father's right hand. And therefore, Peter says, this person being spoken of is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And in fact, it is the ascended Jesus who has sent and prompted the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that they are all witnessing this day. So in effect, if we follow Peter's logic, the disciples speaking in tongues is proof of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. All of this ties together into one giant argument that Peter is making. He's saying basically this, all these signs 
And all these wonders are not something to laugh at. They're not people being drunk in the streets. They're nothing to scoff at. Rather, they are proof that this Jesus that you have heard of is really the Messiah. He really did perform these miraculous wonders. He really did rise from the dead, just as David predicted. He really did ascend into heaven, also as David predicted. And it is because of Jesus' ascension that the Holy Spirit has now been poured out in this powerful way. Peter is essentially saying to this crowd of thousands, wake up. Realize that these signs that you are seeing, the disciples speaking in other languages, is intended to get you to think about larger realities. That Jesus is real. He really is risen. And He really is coming again. There are a few applications that come to mind as I think about how we can apply this text today. First, I think we learn from this passage that we need to convey an urgency to people when we share the gospel. There's certainly an urgency here in the words of Peter. It's almost as if he's saying, don't you see what's happening here was predicted by Scripture. Don't lose sight of this. We are in the last days. There's a connection here between the signs that you're seeing at work in us and the signs that Jesus did on earth. And the greatest sign of all time, His resurrection literally just happened and you didn't take notice. You are all now living in that very time the Scriptures promised. Peter's saying the time is now. Believe in this Jesus. Follow Him. Don't wait until it's too late. And I ask you, have you shared the Gospel with anyone lately with this kind of urgency? And I could ask myself that question for that matter. So it's not just something I'm asking you, I'm asking myself. If not, then this is a call for us to be reminded of those realities ourselves. I think sometimes we forget just how urgent this message is. Because we're comfortable, we're saved, we forget that this is an important thing, that people's time is limited. That were it not for the grace of God, we would be in their same situation. That there's a lost world out there that needs to hear this message. And this message is urgent. We need to point them to Jesus. Application two. Second application I see in this passage is that we need to know our Bibles. For many reasons to be sure, but also so that we can effectively witness to others. Notice this, in all of chapter 2, in the sermon that would have only maybe lasted 10 minutes tops as written, Peter quotes from three separate passages. You notice that. We already talked about that. Joel chapter 2, that was in the, the section we talked about before. Psalm 16, which I pointed out tonight, and Psalm 110. I take from that that Peter knew Scripture well. I don't see in this passage any sense that this was some sort of prophetic act on uh, Peter's part, that he is suddenly taken up by the Holy Spirit to speak these words. It seems that these are words that he knows. These are scriptures that he has in his heart and in his mind. Not that he's being carried along and suddenly knows something that he hadn't memorized before, but he knows scripture. How amazing is that? And I ask you, how well could you tell somebody about Jesus And to be able to tell them, not just explain the concepts, but to be able to quote Scripture to them. 
to be able to help them see in the scriptures where they can be saved, how they can be saved. Peter quotes several different verses here, just like that. And if you go back to Joel chapter 2 and compare it to the way Peter quotes it, he does a really good job. And, and if you go back to Psalm 110 and Psalm 16, Peter knows his scripture. He was able not only to bring it to mind to quote in this moment's notice. He didn't know this was going to happen. He didn't know they were going to start speaking in tongues in the middle of the street and that 3,000 people or more would suddenly be gathered there and he'd have to make a split-second decision as to whether or not he was going to preach about this or not. He didn't know any of that was coming. But yet he did. He took that moment to speak and he had it there. He had it in his mind. So my question is, do you know Scripture well enough to be able to do that? And not only do you know Scripture well enough in that you have it memorized, but can you see the connections? Because what Peter's doing is not only just speaking words of Scripture and quoting it, but in his mind, in the split second where he decides to address the crowd, he makes a connection between events that literally just happened and Scripture and how they all tie together and point to Jesus. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. And it's, it's a challenge, I think, for us tonight to know our Bibles well also. It took courage, for sure, for him to address the crowd that way. It took diligence on his part. He didn't just learn it the night before. This must have been the result of his study and knowing his Bible over a long period of time to be able to quote it like that. And also, the third thing we learn is that the Holy Spirit was the one that enabled Peter to say these things. When we marvel at how somebody like Peter could go from denying the Lord Jesus three times to suddenly having the courage to speak in front of 3,000 people and share the gospel clearly and connect it to Scripture, how do we explain that? How does a guy go from one place to the other? And we have to say it's the Holy Spirit. But in this mysterious way, it's the Holy Spirit working through him, giving him the courage, helping him to, to bring these things to mind, but also that responsibility of us to know the Word of God as well. You see what I'm saying? It's a challenge. I hope you're challenged by it. I know I am. Second way that Peter connects all this to what is going on with the crowd and, and the life of Jesus, <clears throat> and that is um, Jesus' crucifixion demonstrates both the crowd's guilt and their way to be saved. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus also demonstrates that the people in the crowd are guilty and are in need of salvation. Now, Peter doesn't have a dedicated section in his sermon to this point, but rather he weaves it in everything that he has already been saying. So notice these details as we go back through some of this. Acts 2, 22 uh, and 23. Notice how Peter points out their spiritual need to be saved. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, here's the key part, this Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and knowledge of God, you crucified, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice he says, this Jesus, you crucified and killed. Of course, we know that uh, while it's possible that some in the crowd might have been there at Jesus' sentencing, shouting crucify him, literally, certainly not everyone was, not all 3,000 of them at least. 
So Peter is not saying that everyone in the crowd literally killed Jesus, but Peter is expressing the theological truth that all of us are responsible, as it were, for Jesus' crucifixion. And if Peter wanted to, he could have gone into another famous Old Testament passage that would have said the same thing. Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there, but just let me read this part. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Notice that. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The main idea here that Peter's driving at is that Jesus' death shows that we are all guilty. And Peter wants this crowd to know that not only should they be in awe of this Jesus who rose from the dead, but they should also recognize their own guilt as well. Peter will reiterate this again at the end of the sermon if you look now at verse 36 in your text. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You crucified. Again, not literally. Not everybody in the crowd literally were the ones who crucified Jesus. But again, he's restating the same fact that we just learned from Isaiah 53, that all of us are the cause of Jesus' need to go to the cross. All of our sins are to blame. Our sinful selves, we are guilty. Peter ends his sermon here, and he presents his audience not only with an explanation of what has happened with the disciples speaking in this way, but he has also left the crowds with a serious charge for them to consider. He confronts them with their guilt and their need to be saved of their sin. And you know, if I'm honest, I often feel the pressure to sugarcoat the gospel just a little bit. And, and here's what I mean, not speak of it incorrectly, but when we present the gospel, especially to individuals, you know, some of these are things we might say. For example, uh, accept Jesus so that you can be forgiven. Or we would tell somebody you should accept Jesus so that you can become a child of God. Or accept Jesus so that you can have eternal life. And all of those things are true. In fact, I've said those things myself, so I'm not saying any of those statements are wrong. They aren't. In fact, they're very correct. However, the subtle temptation, I think, for any of us, I think, in those kinds of conversations is to try to frame the gospel in as positive and as upbeat of a way as possible. It's certainly far easier for us to speak about the benefits of accepting Jesus than to speak about the very real need of the topics of sin, of God's wrath, of impending judgment. And again, this can be especially challenging when we're talking with somebody one-on-one. -on -one. But what, what I want you to see is that explaining our need for a Savior and our guilt is a part of the gospel. It's necessary for somebody to understand that they are, in fact, a sinner, that they deserve to be punished for disobeying a holy and perfect God who created them. And this is true of all of us, of course, before we come to Christ. We have transgressed His holy law, and as such, we deserve condemnation and eternal punishment for our sins. And it's important for us to remember that and not shy away from that or ever deny it. 
It's because of our sins that Jesus was crucified. It was our sins that put him there, according to the plan of God, but due to our guilt. And so, if you are here tonight and haven't accepted Jesus Christ, let me just say, in case I haven't said it clearly before, that tonight, if you are not saved, if you have not known the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior by accepting him through faith, you stand condemned tonight. You stand guilty. You stand worthy of judgment. And that's not a judgmental statement for me because I once stood in that same place and were it not for the grace of God coming into my heart and causing me to believe and to trust in him, I would be in the exact same spot. But you need to know, dear brother, dear sister, if you're here tonight and have not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there's a problem. And there should be something that should be terribly fearful about that for you. That our sins deserve condemnation and deserve judgment. And you need to be saved from that. We all, apart from Christ, are guilty. We need to be saved. Peter told the crowds very bluntly in verse 36, this Jesus of whom we speak is the same one that you all crucified. We all, because of our sins, are responsible for Jesus' death. He was pierced for our transgressions, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Unless we come to Christ, we all stand as guilty. And that's where Peter ends his sermon. So what are the people in the crowds to do with that knowledge? Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, what did they do? It says they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, Peter and the rest of the apostles were asked, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? And here Peter answers, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The answer that Peter gives is very straightforward. He says this, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Let's explain that. He says, first of all, repent. Repent means to change one's mind, to turn from sin. It's to be sorrowful for one's sin, to desire to turn in the opposite direction. And I like the way the Westminster Catechism puts it. It says, repentance unto life is saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby out of a sense and sight, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such are as penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. That's the larger catechism. Or, as the shorter catechism, uh, specifically for children, says, uh, to be sorry for my sin, this defines repentance, means to be sorry for, for my sin, to hate it, and forsake it. And that's pretty much what we mean to be sorry for my sin, to hate it, and forsake it. Repenting does not earn our forgiveness, to be sure, but forgiveness from God does not come apart from repentance either. Repent is, in fact, a part of the gospel. So if we tell people to believe, let's also tell them to repent. Now, that was part of my problem, actually, as a teenager. I grew up saying, and if you would have known me when I was younger, I, I grew up going to church, and, and I would have said, I believe in Jesus. 
Um, but I, I simply took that as a statement of fact. And the difference was I did not repent of my sin. I didn't hate my sin. I hadn't made a conscious decision to want to turn away from my sin and to follow Christ instead. So I wasn't truly saved until I realized the true serious nature of my sin and the need to repent. And that brings us to Peter's second response. Not only are they to repent, but they also are to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, Peter's not saying here, and this is important to distinguish, he's not saying here that the actual act of baptism saves a person, as if there were something magical about the water. So don't get that impression. He's not saying that baptism saves them. But rather, contained in this idea of being baptized, when he said be baptized, included in all that is the decision to turn away from sin, to follow Christ as our new master. Peter is calling these people to make a public identification with Christ, to declare out loud that he is the one that I now follow. He is my master, and I am now his disciple. And of course, by definition, that means believing who he says he is. So contained in this idea of repenting and being baptized is, of course, this idea of believing him, obviously. But it also implies this decision to follow him. And when one is baptized, we see two different images demonstrated for us. When we go under the water and we come out, it's a picture of our dying and being raised with Christ. We see this in Colossians 2.12. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's the first picture. And then secondly, baptism pictures our washing away of sins. Acts 22, 16 says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon his name. And again, those are just pictures. We don't literally die and rise with Christ when we are baptized, nor does baptism literally wash away our sins, but rather baptism symbolizes these things. It's a picture of what happens when we do come to Christ. And it's also a public declaration of our decision to follow Christ. That's why during our baptism services, we usually sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. So in conclusion, what are we to take away from this passage? Well, if you're sitting here tonight and you have not made that decision to follow Jesus and you're wondering what you should do, here is what the passage is telling you to do very plainly. It says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. I really can't improve on what the Bible is already saying. It says, confess that you are a sinner in all of this. Acknowledge before God that you fail him over and over again, that if you were to meet him today, you would not be able to stand before his holiness, but would be condemned. Repent of your sin. Tell God that you want to turn from your sin and follow him instead. And believe in your heart that Jesus Christ came into the world that he died on a cross to take your punishment, that you could be forgiven, and accept that he is the only way to be saved. Believe that he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is alive today. And when you do that, consider also this command to be baptized as God's way for you to identify with Jesus. That is how you can follow him. You don't need to be baptized as a requirement to be saved. We've already established that. For Ephesians 1, 8 and 9 says, that only by grace through faith can you be saved. There is no work that earns our salvation, and that includes baptism. But God is calling you 
to follow him fully tonight. Know that you can be saved if you follow Jesus. That This call that Peter gave to this crowd over 2,000 years ago is that same call that you are receiving tonight if you fall into that category. Repent, believe, be baptized. That's what God is calling you to do. Romans 10.9 tells us, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then we see the end of this passage. Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine 3,000 souls? It's amazing. Must have been absolutely a wonder to see. And the good news is that we are offered that same offer of forgiveness. It's extended to you tonight. You too can believe in Jesus and be forgiven. Whether you're here in person, whether you're watching online right now live, whether you're watching this months from now, the offer still stands. You can be forgiven and saved. And if you would like to be saved tonight, if you'd like to be forgiven, to be saved, to become a follower of Jesus Christ, that invitation is made for you. For the rest of us, if you already are saved, what do you get out of this passage? What can we take away? Just briefly, Number one, let us seek to convey the urgency of the gospel that we find in these pages. Let's remember that urgency that Peter conveys and do so ourselves. Number two, may we remember to know Scripture well so that when that opportunity comes, we might also be able to share it clearly with those around us. Number three, may we rely upon the Holy Spirit to give us that courage we need to share Jesus Christ boldly with those around us as we see here. And four, may God grant that many would believe and be saved. We look at this text and we see the 3,000, we think, wow, that'd be amazing. God could do it, God still can. May that be the heart of our prayers. More than just us praying that God would help us win a basketball game or that in my case that God would help me to be able to complete an assignment or to be able to do my work throughout the week. Not that any of those are unimportant, they all are, but may we remember to pray for people to be saved and to be baptized and to come to Christ. That is one of the most wonderful things we could pray for. So may we do so tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would draw many to yourself. Thank you for this clear presentation that we find in Acts chapter 2 of who Jesus is. God, may you convict many. May you cause them to repent and to be baptized and to believe. God, may you help us to be challenged by this as well, to know our Bibles, to be filled with courage and be filled with the Holy Spirit to share it and proclaim it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.